Well, on Easter morning, to see that, it's important that we remember together that the resurrection is a beautiful idea to agree with, and we do. But it's also something that happened, something that happens. Around here, we really believe in cheering people on toward taking their next right step and following Jesus. And God does really incredible new things in this world as we do that together. So my hope is that whether you're new or you've been around a while, that we could be that type of community together. Let's pray before we continue. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for stories like that, stories that show us that, that you really do new things in this world. The idea that things never change or they'll always be a certain way, that's just simply not the case. Thank you that Easter reminds us that it's true. Thank you that in these moments together, we can remember that you are a God who lived and died, who sacrificed for our sake that we might be near you, but you are also a God who came and died and now lives. And that's the beauty of the truth of what happened that Easter morning and continues to happen in the resurrected life of your people. So we pray this morning that as we come to your word, we wouldn't just know a little bit more about your story, but we would be transformed because you're a God who still does that type of work in this world. We'd be transformed into your image for the sake of others. And that your word would change our hearts and our hearts would be changed for your service. And it's in the powerful and redemptive name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. John, one of Jesus' closest followers, gives this account of the first Easter morning. John chapter 20, it's in your bulletin if you wanna follow along. Early the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb where Jesus was laid and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, one seated, uh, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and actually saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. 
And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. A few years ago, I had a chance to go to uh, Malawi uh, with one of our partnerships, Children of the Nation, one of our oldest partners in East Central Africa to continue the partnership there. And uh, I've subsequently been able to go uh, quite a few times, and I'm always so grateful that I get a chance to do that. But on this first trip, uh, my wife's act of service uh, was to stay home with the kids and, and watch them, which is no easy task. And I found out on that trip, and it's subsequently been uh, confirmed again and again, that there is a direct correlation between daddy goes to Africa and we get a new pet. Um, That happens, uh, and it's been confirmed more times than I'd like to admit. This first episode was a little red betta fish named Malawi. Now, you may think that this is a pretty bad excuse to get a new pet. Daddy goes out of the country, and so now, you know, there's no checks and balances system, and so we can get a pet. But if you hear my kids talk about it, uh, you'd probably think otherwise. I asked when I got home, I was like, what's up with the fish? And they said, well, that's Malawi. And because you weren't here to pray with us at night, and we couldn't see you to pray for you while you were in Africa, we got Malawi so that when we saw him, we would remember to pray for you that you'd be safe and so that the kids in Africa would have food. It's hard to argue with that. Um, As you can imagine, Malawi became pretty important in the family, uh, but like any $2 fish, uh, they don't last forever. And so that's a lot of pressure for a $2 fish. Eventually, I came out one morning and, uh, and, and saw that Malawi was taking a little extra time waking up. Maybe he'd stayed up late, but then realized, uh, no, he's taking an awful long time to wake up, like forever, like he's not going to wake up. And I was the first one up, and my daughter's usually the second one up, and she's our um, emotive uh, child. And so I was like, this isn't going to be good. So Eden finally comes out, and she notices that Malawi isn't waking up, and, and she, says, um, she says, Daddy, um, can he come back? And I was like, no, honey, that's not how it works. I mean, I wish he, I wish he could. It'd be so great if he could come back. But no, he's, he, he's gone. To which she responded, I thought that'd be the end of it. She responded, well, you could try. I'm not exactly sure what she was uh, supposing that I try. I don't know a lot about fish CPR, but I told her, like, hey, I don't think, I don't think it's going to happen. He's gone, and, and, and that's kind of the end of it. And I thought then the, the weight of the reality would kind of sink in for her. And So the very next thing she says, she pauses for a second, and she goes, it's okay. We can just get another one. What's for breakfast? And I was like, okay, so we <laughs> safe. Um, When Mary went to the tomb that first Easter morning, there was no going and getting another one. She didn't go to the tomb expecting Jesus to be there. She had no hope that that he would be there alive. There was no going and finding another one to follow. I followed Jesus for a while. Now he's not here. I'll just go get another one. It wasn't like that for Mary. She had put all of her hope of, of salvation and significance and meaning in the person of Jesus, and now that he was gone, it was over. She followed him, and he hadn't delivered. There are probably some of you here this morning who have very low expectations for what's going to happen in this service, very low expectations that God could do anything, if God's even there, if he'll show up, if he'll change things, very low expectations, but your expectations, I can promise you, were much higher, are much higher than the followers of Jesus were that first Easter morning. John 20 opens when it's still dark. It says, early in the first day of the week, 
While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' followers, went to the tomb. That's how chapter 20 starts. And we could think of this as maybe just um, uh, non-essential temporal information. He just, John just wants us to know that the day got started early, but I think there's more going on there than, than that because this is so different than how the Jesus story started. I mean, this is a stark contrast to the beginning of John's gospel. We read John chapter 20, but if you go back to John chapter one, the beginning of the gospel, it reads so differently than this Easter morning. Two of the other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, they record as the first chapter, the opening of their gospels of Jesus. They, they talk about the birth of Jesus and the events surrounding that and, and, and what happened uh, with, with Emmanuel, God coming to earth. But John opens his gospel differently. He talks not about the birth of Jesus, but the impact that Jesus' coming had on the world. John chapter one starts this way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was the life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light breaking into darkness, new reality ushered in by Jesus. That's how John's gospel started. That's how this Jesus story started. But now, it's dark. And John means in every sense of the word, Jesus goes to the cross on Friday, Good Friday, this Jewish rabbi that they'd put so much hope and, and life and energy and trust into, he goes to the cross and he dies. And he's buried and it's over. It's dark. And part of why Mary was so hopeless that Easter morning going to the tomb was precisely because she was so disappointed because this is so different than how the story started. She followed him, and he didn't deliver. And it didn't matter how many times he said it, and he actually said it Quite often, he would say things like, if you tear down this temple, referring to himself, I'll build it back up in three days. He said things like, the son of man, again, referring to himself, the son of man must die so that the father can lift him up. It didn't matter how many times he said it, the, the followers, they just didn't get it because that's a hard thing to understand. They had no hope that Jesus would make it through death because dead things stay dead. And he didn't come back. And that's how things are supposed to be. But when they get to the tomb, when Mary gets there, the, the stone has been rolled away. Something has changed. Something's different. She looks in, and Jesus isn't there, so she takes off running. She finds Peter and John. John refers to himself. This is the gospel writer. Refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. No ego problem with John. And so she finds him and says, look, Jesus is gone. I don't know where he is. They've taken him somewhere. you got to come see Notice, nothing out of the ordinary. There has to be a reasonable explanation for where Jesus is because nothing supernatural could possibly happen because this is how things just are. So Peter and John, they take off running. And then, uh, to me, this is actually one of the funniest verses in all of the scripture. It's easy to just pass over, but it says this. Both were running, but the other disciple, that's John, referring to himself, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John wants everyone for all of history to know that he's a better sprinter than Peter. I think this is hilarious, and it seems so additive and completely unnecessary, and I don't really know why John put this in there, uh, but I kind of get John, at least a little bit. Uh, when we started this campus seven years ago, we, uh, we got our Summit Connect groups, our small groups together, and we did this kind of field day thing, this flag football deal, and it was so fun, um, and uh, that was on a Saturday, and then the next day was 
a Sunday, and a guy came up to me who was at this, this field day, this, this flag football thing, comes up to me after service on the Sunday, and he said, hey man, I just wanted to tell you, you're a lot faster than you look on stage. <laughs> Which made me think two things. One, I don't know how you could get a gauge of how fast I am from stage. I've never simulated a sprint, till now. Um, there you go, no question. Um, and then the other one was, what do I look like on stage? It was just like, do I move too slow or something? I'm not really sure. So I got really self-conscious about it. So my guess is the reason that John put this in there is because he's faster than he looks. <laughs> so John reaches the tomb and uh, looks in and he sees the burial cloth there. And then Peter uh, reaches the tomb, finally, I assume, after catching his breath, and uh, goes in and he sees the same thing. The, the burial cloth are there, but no Jesus. And then it says in verse 8, uh, John finally goes inside and it says he saw and believed. There's hope, right? He saw and believed. Not exactly. Because the very next thing that it says is they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So then verse 10, it says they went back to where they were staying. We go from one of the most superfluous verses in all the Scriptures to one of the most sad ones, actually. They saw and believed. They saw that Jesus was gone, that something had happened, but they didn't understand what it was, so they just decided to go back to where they were, like nothing had happened. And it seems so odd that Jesus' followers, those that were so close to him, were a part of this event and just decided, well, you know what? I guess we'll just, we'll just go back. It seems odd, but then I realize we do this all the time. Maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you didn't. Maybe you're here every week. Maybe you're just here because someone invited you with no intention of continuing to come to, to church on Sundays or whatever. Um, but we've all probably had a moment where we've said, things, things are bigger than I can add them up. Something's going on here and I can't quite figure it out. There's a series of events that have come together in my life that I can't explain. And then we start to think, well, maybe there's something going on. Maybe there's something bigger than I can get actually out there. And then life happens. Bills, careers, calendars, schedules, kids need attention, real life stuff happens, and so we walk away, believing that there's more, but not really knowing what that more is. At first, I think, how could the disciples do that? How could they just walk away from the resurrection event? Then I realize, well, I do that as well. So often, I don't quite understand what God is up to, so I go about my business like he's up to nothing, like I gotta figure it all out on my own, which begs the question, have you ever walked away too soon? But Mary doesn't. Mary stays. She sticks at the tomb. She's crying. She's distraught. And this is important for a few reasons, what happens next here. But not least of which is this. She, like so many women, Mary, is, is lifted up for the role that she plays in, in God's redemptive plan and the story of saving the whole world. Women are lifted up again and again and again. In her culture that was incredibly patriarchal, even misogynistic, women couldn't be witnesses in court, a woman was the first witness of the resurrection. She's the one that told the disciples. She was the first good news teller, the first evangelist. God seems to be saying here that if you ever wonder if there's equal value between men and women in my plan to redeem the whole world, the answer is resoundingly yes. So Mary distraught, she looks in and the scriptures say she saw two angels in white, one at the head and one at the foot of where Jesus had been. There's a New Testament scholar named Rowan Williams who says the first readers of this account, when they got to this 
moment, the angels, one at the head and one at the foot, would have realized something astounding. What is that? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy in particular, but other Old Testament books as well, describes uh, what's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat is in the temple in Jerusalem, this place that was uh, built to be the house of the Lord, where God uh, dwelled in a unique way. And as you got further in, he dwelled in this uh, even more unique way. So the mercy seat is inside the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments that uh, were God's word to his people were housed. And the mercy seat was there. And on the mercy seat, there were two angels with wings extended, one at the head, and one at the foot. Once a year, a designated priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial animal on the mercy seat and ask God, please forgive us for not being who we should be. It sounds brutal, but it was part of the sacrificial system that said, if you've leaned onto things too much, more than you should, more than you've trusted in God, you should forego that. You should let go of that thing as a sacrifice to remind you that God is your provider. So that was how the sacrificial system was set up. And so they would sprinkle this blood on the mercy seat and ask God, God, will you please forgive us for not being the people that you've created us to be, not being your display people in this world. And God would always, always say yes. He would always offer forgiveness. So when John, when people read this from John the first time, this gospel, the astounding thing that they would have heard is that this place, this place meant for the body of Jesus to lay dead, that's the place where God will meet his people with mercy. This is now the mercy seat. The place of his sacrifice, not the place of our sacrifice, is where God will uniquely meet us. And the same is true today. It's the place of his sacrifice, not ours, where he meets us. The place of his victory over sin and death and pain, that's where we see God fully. So the angels ask Mary, why are you crying? She says, they they took Jesus away, and I don't know where they put him. Essentially, she says, all that I have left of what was good is gone, and I have to find it. I have to put it back together as best as I possibly can. And she turns around, and she actually sees Jesus standing there, but she doesn't know that it's him. And so he asks her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And she says, sir, if, if, if you've carried him away, she thinks it's the gardener, somebody to tend the tomb. If you've carried him away, tell me where he is. I'll, I'll get him. I'll take care of it. Mary is still very much in the dark. She's there with Jesus, but she doesn't know that he's with her because her perception of what God was doing hadn't caught up with the reality of what God was doing. Her perception of what God was doing hadn't caught up to the reality of what God was doing. Uh, It was probably five or six years ago, uh, we were on vacation with my family, and uh, it was a beach vacation, and there was one day it was raining, which is always a bummer on a beach vacation, Uh, but uh, we said, well, we'll, we'll make the best of it, we'll go see a movie. Great. So uh, the only movie that was rated appropriately for my children that given day, um, <laughs> that sad day, uh, was, uh, was a movie called Mars Needs Moms. Um, good Disney movie, no problem there. Great, PG rated, everything's fine. Um, Mars Needs Moms is the worst movie ever made in the history of movies, and not just cinematically, though it is. Um, the content as well. Let me give you a little bit of the the premise, the synopsis of of Mars Needs Moms. Essentially, for alien babies on Mars to survive, they need to abduct uh, mothers, human mothers, take them to Mars, put a long needle in their head, like explode their brains. There's a reason you've never heard of this movie. It's awful. I don't know why we didn't leave, but it was one of those like train wreck things, and we were like, hopefully, like maybe somebody will make it out of this okay, and it'll be all redeemable. It wasn't. Um, And so we come out of the movie... 
And Caleb, my, my son, he was maybe seven at the time, he, he grabs Abby by the hand. He looks up at and he says, Mommy, I don't want you to be gone. <sighs> I know, thanks a lot, Mixie Mouse. Golly, um, not so magical that day. Um, so actually, a couple weeks after this, uh, we were talking about this with some friends. We had some friends over, and Caleb was playing in the back, and we were like, hey, this Martin and his mom movies like, are a little bit rough, and Caleb comes like running around the corner and goes all Siskel and Ebert, and he's like, just so you know, Marsney's mom should not be seen by any child, is not appropriately rated. Uh, and he talked like that when he was seven, so it was really cute. Um, but we were there in the theater for like 10 minutes. Um, just, I was just looking, I was like, Caleb, mommy's right there. She's not gone. Mommy's right there. But the fear had gripped him so much, his perception of what was happening hadn't caught up with the reality of what was happening. Some of you are here this morning, you're in less than ideal situations. Your perception of what you're going through leads you to ask questions like, is God even there? Certainly doesn't seem like he cares. Does he care? Maybe God's gone. Maybe he was here once, but now he's gone. And I'm, maybe you're thinking, like, how's, how's any of this good news for me? How's this Jesus story? How's this even matter to me because I'm struggling here? And if that's you, I'm, I'm actually really, really sorry. I wish it weren't so. I wish you weren't struggling. And what I'm not saying is that your struggle and your pain and your trial and your mess, that it isn't real. What I'm saying is that it might not correspond to full reality. Because what Easter reminds us is there is nothing that's beyond his grasp, nothing that's beyond his help. He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. When he comes in, there is nothing that is so broken that it can't be put back together. Though it may still seem dark, light has come and light is coming. And sometimes recognizing that starts with looking up. Mary was frantic. She, she, was, she was saying, where is he? I'll go get him. I'll take care of it. I'll fix it all. What she was doing was trying to get the task done with no hope. She was doing her very best to move forward with no hope at all. And Jesus says to her, I know things seem like they're moving fast, like they're out of control, like you can't stop, like the world is spinning. And you have to figure out how to put it all back together. But stop. Be still and know that I'm God. Sometimes you have to stop long enough to recognize that he's near. Sometimes you have to stop long enough to recognize that the world will get along okay if you slow down and look into the face of the one who loves you, the one who is love, the one who came for you and is with you. Because you might be getting all the tasks done, but it might be without hope. And that's not what we're made for. And so oftentimes it's in the slowing down that we can get clarity, where we can see clearly where our perceptions can catch up with reality. Jesus says, Mary, and she recognizes him. But this is important to note. Mary did not recognize, didn't see Jesus because she hoped to. She wasn't sitting around hoping that Jesus would show up. Remember, she was on to the next task, finding his body, getting it all taken care of. Easter is not a story of people getting their hopes up enough to get to God. Easter is a story of God coming with hope to us, showing up, moving in our direction. Hope coming our way. Paul in Romans 8, 
uh, verse 24 says, uh, it's in hope that we have been saved. And this isn't general hope like mustering up the right types of feelings and thoughts so that the universe somehow produces what we want it to produce. No, Paul is saying it is in hope that we have been saved and that hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. Hope in anything else will disappoint. Hope in anyone else will disappoint. But hope in him will not because he's rock solid when things seem unfixable and broken. Because he's the one who moves toward us to put things back together. And so Mary recognizes him, grabs him, and then Jesus says something shocking. Everything that's happened to this point is shocking. All the events are shocking, you know, the whole rising from the dead thing. But now he says something shocking. Don't hold on to me. What? I mean, I think this is what we're supposed to do, right? Like, this is what we learn in church. We're supposed to hold tight to Jesus. That's what we're, like, we're supposed to hold on. Why is Jesus saying, don't hold on to me? He says, don't hold on to me. I've yet to send to the Father. Go instead, tell my brothers that I'm ascending to, to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Jesus is saying to Mary, don't hold so tightly to right this second that you miss what comes next because the truth of the gospel is that the best is yet to come. There is always more, and it's better. The best day ever isn't somewhere back there, and our lives are not best lived in freeze frame. They're not. We don't have to cling to this very moment like this is all there is and there's nothing after this because that's not the truth. This is what makes the birth of Jesus good news of great joy for all the people. If it had ended on the cross, it wouldn't be good news but it didn't end on the cross, it ended with the resurrection and it continues with the resurrection. Sometimes people will, will ask the question, can you be a Christian and believe in the principles uh, of Jesus but not the actual resurrection of Jesus? Well, the first followers would have said, why would you put your hope in someone who is either crazy or a liar? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're stuck. Sin Pain, death, that's the end of the story if Jesus isn't raised. And that makes us fools. If he wasn't raised, what are we doing here? But we shape our lives around the truth that he was raised from the dead, that this is actual rock-solid truth, that our sin, our sin, even death, has been defeated by the love of God, and the love of God overcomes every single part of what is dark. We put our lives on that. So Jesus gives Mary a task. He says, don't hold on tight because there is more to come. Jesus never asked us to let go of something without giving us the next thing to move toward. And so he does so with Mary and he says, go tell. There's good news for you to live in. There's good news that other people need to hear about. Go tell people the story isn't over. The grave wasn't the end. So Jesus sends Mary as this, this unexpected messenger to go tell the disciples that it's true. And that's what we still are today. That's what followers of Jesus are still today. We're unexpected messengers invited to go tell the world what happened at Easter. The truth that no matter how much hope we can drum up based on the circumstances around us, regardless of how much hope we bring to the table, hope moves and moved and continues to move our direction because he loved you so much. He said the distance between you and him wouldn't do, so he moved the full way. He came all the way toward 
you. Hope moved your direction. And if we trust in the hope that came, the hope that rose up, we won't be disappointed. Jesus says, trust in me. I've defeated death. I've paid the price. You can come home. Because light keeps breaking into darkness. Darkness does not win. Though it may still seem dark, light has come and light is coming. John 1 was right. That's what we tell. A good and true thing happened that first Easter morning, the resurrection. And because it did, because it actually happened, every second of every single day for every single one of us is ready to burst with the hope of new life and love and grace and peace coming into this world. And that involves and that includes each of us. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that the grave couldn't hold you. And that when we find ourselves in, in the midst of of a struggle, of a trial, we can know that that's not the end of the story because you're a God who faced down sin and death and pain and hurt. You faced it down and you won. And you stand victorious. And in your hands, you hold mercy and love and grace and it's available to us and you offer it to us, we need just look into your eyes because you came all the way toward us. We didn't need to bring hope to Easter. Hope came our direction and hope continues to come our direction if we look into your face. Thank you that that's true. In Jesus' name, amen.